What's up, everybody, and welcome to another, hmm, how do we say, redeployment episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. This was, in fact, an unscheduled redeployment episode. We actually had a guest booked this week, but due to multiple, um, let's see, situations, issues, food bars, things happen, <laughs> basically out of multiple situations out of everyone's control. We, as in all three of us, we all were not able to get together and do a podcast this week. And for that, we do apologize. But the good news is that gives us an opportunity to dig into the old archives, open up that filing cabinet, pull out a folder, and produce you guys with some content that probably some of you have never heard before. So without any further ado, I lied. Here's a little more ado. If you want to support the podcast, please do us all a favor and head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that Patreon link, sign up, and subscribe. Do the dollar month plan. That's all you got to do. One dollar a month. There's two other plans on there. We won't even talk about them. If you want to give us more than a dollar a month, there's two other plans on there that will accommodate your desires. But we here at the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, we'd be happy with the dollar a month plan. So please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that one dollar a month plan. Subscribe. And uh, while you're there, click on the link to go check out our YouTube videos. But now, without any more further ado, please enjoy this redeployment episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. I am your host, Don Abernathy. First off, let me say to all the mothers listening today, or pass it on for me to all of your mothers, happy Mother's Day. I hope it's been a great, relaxing day. Hope you got to enjoy time with your family, maybe have a good meal, go out and do some things. Um, before we start to show a little house cleaning I want to take care of. And as I said on past episodes, we are now available for download through iTunes and Stitcher. And so if you are a current user of Stitcher, please look us up. Search for WTSP in your search bar and you'll find us. If you're an Apple user, please download us and find us through iTunes. Simply search for WTSP on iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and review us. Thanks so much. And now on with the show. So joining us now on the phone from the Furious Fourth World War II Living History Group up in Pennsylvania, one of the unit coordinators, Jared Frederick. Jared, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Please tell me you're a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. Oh, yes. Uh -huh, yep. I, I just didn't know if I had a Flyers guy on the phone, that's all. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I'm... I'm really a lifelong history buff. Um, I got interested in history when I saw the movie Gettysburg at age seven. And uh, that's uh, when my fascination with, with the past really began in earnest. And, uh, you know, throughout my teenage years, I was involved in a lot of historical projects and publications. Uh, later on, by the time I got to college, uh, I became involved with the National Park Service and worked at a, a number of uh, historical parks and military parks, and uh, that uh, served as a, a stepping stone into academia, and uh, that's uh, the, the function that I serve in now. I'm currently an instructor of history at Penn State Altoona. Nice. I think you're probably the first collegiate-level um, history teacher, or professor for that matter, we've had on the show, so thanks for breaking down that wall with us. What got you, you started into, uh, you said you first saw the film Gettysburg, and that led into your National Park Service interest. What actually led you into the World War II phase of the hobby? You know, uh, that's uh, an interesting question, and uh, that too was something that began in college. 
Um, there were a, a number of uh, we history majors who were very close together, and uh, one of them uh, had been doing World War II reenacting since he was about 16 or 17 years old. And our senior year of college, uh, he encouraged uh, the rest of us to uh, join him in the hobby. And uh, that was uh, around uh, 2009 or 2010. And uh, that was the, the beginning of our uh, uh, very expensive hobby, and we're going strong at it still. What was the uh, first group you were a member of? Well, like many uh, World War II reenacting groups, we started out doing the the 101st Airborne, and it was just a, a very you know simple you know squad size unit uh, that, that we were a part of, and we were just kind of a a group un, unto ourselves. Um, but you know, after a, a year or so of that, we we realized just how many airborne units there were mm -hmm. in the hobby of reenacting, and that wasn't necessarily proportional historically. Um, to what the ETO was really like. Um, and so we, we opted to do an infantry division, a standard infantry division instead. Yeah, as I mentioned on past episodes, um, I didn't research the hobby before I got into this. I kind of fell into it through the purchase of a helmet, but I made the logistical mistake of my first impression was USMC PTO. And the reason I say logistical is because at the time, it's getting more and more popular now, especially down here in Florida, but at the time, there really wasn't anybody doing it as a, in a large group, and there really uh -huh. wasn't any events outside of living history. And so I got involved by going to museums, attaching myself to First ID, but doing a Marine impression. And uh, their leader at the time, you know, John, asked me, said, hey, why don't you start slowly investing in some First ID gear? We can load you out in some loaner gear. So that's how I converted over into doing first ID. So at what point and uh, how did you get involved with the uh, Furious Fourth? Uh, well, I was one of the founders of the Furious Fourth um, for a, a year or so there. Um, uh, you know, we were a, a very small group. You know, there were just four or five of us. And uh, we were really trying to decide what we wanted to do, what we wanted to portray, how we could be you know, different in that regard. And, uh, you know, for a lot of the, the big events, you know, like uh, the D-Day Conneaut reenactment that takes place every August in Ohio, um, we were just kind of, uh, you know, a group that was uh, floating from one bigger group to another just so we could participate. Um, but it was in, oh, about 2012 or 2013 um, that we decided that we wanted to portray the 4th Infantry Division. Um, and there were really two reasons why we chose that path. Um, the, the first of which um, is that simply not many people were portraying uh, that unit uh, at the time, uh, which we thought was very odd because they were the, the first Americans ashore in Normandy. They were the first American troops into Paris. They were the first American troops into Germany. They were in every major campaign in Western Europe. Um, and yet hardly anybody really knew about them. Um, so we thought that, you know, we could, you know, fit a nice niche, uh, historically speaking, in that regard. Um, and uh, secondly, uh, you know, uh, something that really raised our awareness uh, about the role of the 4th Division um, was the fact that, that my own grandfather uh, had served in that outfit during the war. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was this familial connection, too, 
that I personally and my brother had uh, with, with this Army division that in many ways drew us to their story. And I think that's a great point. Um, if you have the opportunity and if you have a family member who served and they were in a, you know, in a division that you can find some information about, having that personal connection will make this all more important to you. It'll make the desire and the uh, feeling of the need to get things right that much more important to you to personalize it. And this hobby is very personal to all of us, but the, just the fact that when you're reading this stuff, and you're researching it, and you're building your uniform and your impression, you have the extra added value to think, my grandfather wore this uniform. My grandfather was actually involved in these activities that I'm reading about. And that personalization will just enforce your passion so much more. I agree completely. One of the things that attracted me to your guys' group, and I found you through um, postings on Facebook, you guys make some fantastic photos and from what I've seen, a lot of your living history displays are very in-depth. Um, one, you have the the habitat, if you will, the geographical layout that allows you to dig some quality foxholes and actually build a living history impression at these events. Down here in Florida, you know, it's a lot of sand, and obviously it's hard to portray an ETO foxhole or bivouac down here in Florida. But you guys have put together some great photos, and I could tell through viewing your Facebook page that you guys put a great amount of emphasis on the living history side of this hobby, the research side of this hobby, and the development of a good quality, detailed impression, as well as you guys also interview World War II vets when you have the opportunity, correct? Yes, and uh, thank you for your, your kind words. Um, you know, and as far as you know, I and my fellow members see it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's too expensive a hobby um, to do it wrong. <laughs> And if you're going to invest the time and the money, it needs to be of quality. And at the forefront of our efforts is education. Um, and, uh, you know, to be, you know, perfectly blunt, um, I don't believe that is the, the intentions of every reenactor group, and, and that's okay to, to some extent. Um, in a lot of cases, you have uh, groups that... Uh, simply like to go out and play. Um, nothing wrong with that per se. Uh, it's a hobby. Everybody, you know, uh, needs uh, some time off and so forth. Um, but we really try to take it up to uh, the next level. And, uh, you know, uh, another um, problem that, that we tend to see with some other reenactors um, is that uh, when they interact with the public, they tend to share the story of stuff rather than the experiences of people. And I think there's really unique ways where you can uh, balance those two things out, where you can talk about 1940s material culture, but you can talk about it, you know, through the eyes of the people who used it, and you can talk about their war experiences in a really dramatic way. So, you know, that's just one of several things that we try to do. And we try to do it at a lot of different venues, really diverse venues, um, whether it be the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center in Carlisle, the Pennsylvania Military Museum, Eisenhower National Historic Site, um, or our most recent trip at Battleship North Carolina. We really just try to make history interactive, engaging, and sometimes entertaining for people. 
And that's a very important point that no one, including myself, has brought up on the show. And I'm super thankful that you just did. And, and I want to revisit that for a second. As you said, you, people are just essentially talking to the public about stuff. And I never thought about it until you just said that. When you're talking to the people about stuff, yes, you're doing a, a history display, but you're kind of not much different than a military swap meet at any other event you know, where people can go and buy old vintage stuff. And that is a great point. You know, obviously, it's the firearms and the heavy helmet and heavy gear that, that gather people's attention. But once you have their attention, take advantage of that and start teaching them, personalizing them, and actually start talking about your group, about the men, about the leaders, about the campaigns, and the actual living through the war, and actually trying to educate them while you have them. Because we are in a very beneficial or lucky, really, spot to where strangers and the general public are coming up to us and saying, hey, what are you doing here? What's the whole purpose of being here? And to say, well, here's my gun, here's my helmet. You know, once again, you're kind of a swap meet. But if you have the luxury, take take full advantage of that time you have and have content in the back of your mind or even written down. Have displays. Um, First ID does a really good job down here of actually having physical displays with maps of landings, um, small synopsis of missions and things of that nature. And so that is a great point to build your impression and build your group more around the personalities and the, the people involved than just the actual stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, considering, you know, uh, you know, the proportion of, you know, people who you know, serve in the military today, you know, about um, only about 1% of our uh, country as it is uh, serves in the military. Um, in, in contrast to the, the time period of the Second World War, where it was about one out of every ten people serving in the military. You know, it's not a given just because someone shows up at a military museum or a living history event that they will have an immediate connection or an immediate understanding of what you're talking about. And so offering context is absolutely essential when engaging with the public. And often... Um, doing so through personal stories, showing uh, photos of actual people who served in the division, conveying um, their individual experiences, um, just go a really, really long way in serving as an icebreaker and a means for you to pull people into the experience. Yeah, and we got into this conversation a few episodes back with Tom Kelly, and he offered up a lot of great ideals and resources for developing the history of the group that you're doing your impression on. As far as the um, the Furious Fourth go and what you guys do, what are some of the tools and the habits, if you will, that you guys have taken into your group to collect information? Where do you guys go? How do you go about, you know, finding some of the source material to learn about and to build your impression off of? It's a great question, and I'll just add that uh, you know Tom Kelly's group has really set the bar high in regards to uh, research, and they've really. Um, uh, established a, a great resource available to all reenactors on on their website and Facebook page. We try to reach out to a, a number of different venues and sites. We have done research at Carlisle Barracks, um, where there's a, a pretty extensive library on uh, infantry materials from the Second World War. Uh, we've done two trips to the National Archives to dig up primary sources. And uh, we have, uh, well, at this point, several thousands of pages 
of uh, daily reports, after-action reports, officer interviews, um, and uh, we're we're still filing through those uh, as we speak. Um, but really, you know, some of the the greatest materials that, that we have uh, access to um, are provided to us by uh, family members of these veterans. Um, you know, we have uh, close to. 6,000 followers on our, our Facebook page at, at this moment. And uh, a lot of those people are individuals who have very intimate connections to the history of the 4th Infantry Division. And uh, so much to, to the extent, you know, we, we've started a, a new album on our page where we're sharing photographs that, that people send to us of their grandfathers, their uncles, their great-grandfathers. And, uh, you know, oftentimes uh, that's just a, a treasure trove of information. Um, additionally, um, we're constantly prowling for uh, rare books, uh, books that are out of print um, on the division, and uh, over the past year or two, we've had a, a, a fair amount of luck uh, in, in finding uh, books uh, such as that, whether they be long-lost memoirs, uh, old regimental histories. Um, all of these things really add up. Uh, over time, and uh, here in my office, I have a, a little fourth ID library uh, that I use quite often for reference. Well, as I stated earlier, you are in fact the first history professor we've had on the show. It would uh, not behoove any of us if I didn't take advantage of the situation and ask you, if you don't mind, to give us a little history lesson on the 4th Infantry Division and uh, drop some knowledge on us. Sure. Um, the 4th Infantry Division was established during uh, the First World War, and uh, just a few months ago, in fact, the division celebrated its uh, centennial, its 100th anniversary. And uh, it was uh, one of uh, several Army units uh, that, that mobilized uh, immediately prior to the United States formally entering uh, the Second World War. And uh, a lot of its troops trained at Fort Gordon, Camp Wheeler, and Fort Dix in New Jersey. And Fort Dix was, uh, in, in many ways, a, a big assembling area for uh, the division that would eventually be making its way across the Atlantic. And from really December of 43 through the early spring of 1944, um, the division was ferried across the Atlantic, and for the several months until D-Day, um, they did their their, their training in, uh, in and around various uh, English communities. As I mentioned earlier, the division, specifically the 8th Infantry Regiment, was uh, among the, the first amphibious American troops to land on the shores of Normandy on Utah Beach. And uh, very famously, as, uh, as is depicted in the, the movie The Longest Day, they landed about a half mile off course, and that ended up being a big saving grace because they landed in an area that was comparatively lighter defended uh, than what their uh, original uh, landing zone was going to be. And, uh, you know, and on D-Day, uh, you know, they suffered perhaps about 200 or so casualties, uh, which is very minimal in comparison to the, you know, perhaps 2,000 casualties on Omaha Beach. 
but the war certainly caught up with them because they certainly had it handed to them in the hedgerows countries of France. As I also mentioned earlier, by the time they got to mid-August, they were among the first American soldiers in Paris, and about a month later, uh, they entered Germany as well. And from then until late winter of 1945, there was this seesaw of wandering back and forth between France, Germany, Belgium, and Luxembourg. And within there, um, the division was really chewed up in uh, the Hurricane Forest as well as the Battle of the Bulge. And uh, by the time uh, the war came to uh, an end in spring of 45, uh, there were about 34,000 casualties uh, inflicted uh, within the division. Going from my research, that's essentially the highest of any division that uh, served in the ETO. And of them, about 5,000 were killed. So, you know, this was a unit that was constantly in combat from June of 1944 to April of 1945. Yeah, it almost sounds like they were the ground infantry division equivalent to the 101st. Um, we always hear, you know, obviously researching Band of Brothers and watching that, that they're kind of always the tip of the spear when it came to the airborne and the airborne advance. It almost sounds like the uh, 4th Division was almost the ground infantry equivalent to them. They're constantly on the front line and constantly moving and taking a lot of the uh, casualties. Yeah, I think it's a, a fair comparison. And, uh, you know, I think your, your point highlights the fact that, uh, you know, often what we know and appreciate most is what we see in movies most frequently. And, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, the, the 4th Division has, hasn't really been, you know, prominently highlighted. Um, in such a way in popular culture. So uh, perhaps we will someday, though. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, that was part of the reason why you guys decided to develop this impression is, you know, you looked around and you said, well, here's a greatly underrepresented group who had a huge contribution to the war effort. You know, it's time that someone shines a light on these guys. Why not make it us? And I think that's kind of a great tip for anybody who's kind of floating around there local uh, reenacting community who kind of feels like they're without a home. They're just surfing around just to get to events and to meet people. And so maybe that's a key suggestion, if you will, if you're wanting to get more out of this hobby and to develop your own group and to build one, maybe that's something you could look into. What other groups are greatly underrepresented? Find out, research them, and, and help build a group based on them so that they get their history told as well. Yeah, I think I wholeheartedly uh, agree with that. And, uh, you know, I, I encourage, uh, you know, uh, potential groups, you know, looking to form up, um, you know, be creative, uh, dig deep into the resources, and uh, you may be surprised what you find. Well, I, I will admit this, since, um, since I've started doing this podcast, and especially after I had Tom Kelly on and, and now you, I've realized the um, lack of um, great effort that I have put into my first ID impression. Clearly, as I stated before, when I first got into this, the PTO was my area of expertise. And if you've heard any of the episodes I've done with Mike Blasky about Tarawa or any of the PTO stuff, 
I, I know quite a bit about it, but I'm definitely, as I'm talking to you, I'm sitting there thinking, okay, I want to get on Amazon. I need to start ordering me some uh, first ID books and uh, reach out to, you know, some of the organizations who specify and uh, preserving the history of the first ID and so that I can build my impression so that I can put my money where my mouth is. You know, it's easy for me to sit here on a podcast and tell people how to improve their impression, but not to do it myself would make me a bit of a hypocrite and an a-hole. So um, I'm definitely learning as I'm going along doing this show, trying to help build the the World War II history community that, you know, I need to do my part as well. And so I want to thank you and Tom for kind of putting the proverbial foot up my butt to help me get my um, ass in gear to um, further research my impression as well. Like I said, it, it's a hobby, but, you know, all we can do is, is try our best. Um, but, you know, as, as you alluded to, um, you know, reading a few books and, you know, examining primary sources, um, it, it just goes a, a really long way, and it, it really will make you, um, you know, a better-versed presenter when you're uh, engaging with the general public, whether they be uh, middle schoolers or grown adults. And, and as I've said in, the, in, I think, my first or second episode, when um, back in the day, you know, I wasn't a very good student due to some of the learning disabilities I had growing up, but it was actually... Um, what got me into reading was reading some of the books on the 101st and things of that nature. And I actually have quite a substantial physical library growing here in my studio. And I think that's key that if you're going to put the time and the money into buying the gear, buying, putting together the impression, buying the artifacts, by all means, go out and drop 5 $2, $10, $15 on a book and read it. And if you're not a big reader and it's not something that you enjoy you may be surprised how the difference of reading something that you have a passion for will change your whole perspective on reading and studying alone i mean as a child and as a student there was very few things that i had an interest in and so when i'm sitting down at school and being told to read this read that if i didn't have an interest in it it was hard for me to make it three pages but when i sit down and i read about the pto or about the eto i'll start reading and next thing i know it's three hours later and i'm halfway through a book and so for the younger guys getting into this or for, you know, people who transitioned in, into this from whether they're doing paintball as a kid or maybe they're doing airsoft and now they want to get more into the reenacting side, but they're, they're kind of hesitant to talk to the public when they're at an event because they're not too knowledgeable in the situation because maybe they aren't too big into reading. Just give it a shot. Go down to a, a bookstore. A lot of times you'll find a lot of World War II books on sale, believe it or not. I have found quite a few books of all places at the checkout line at Bell's Outlet, which is a huge outlet store down here. It's a place where you go to buy clothes and things for your house, not books, but believe it or not, I have found books on D-Day. I found books on the Marine Corps just sitting in the clearance aisle for $2. So, you know, you'd be surprised where you find a book and just check it out. You may be surprised that your hobby will actually help generate a love for reading. Absolutely. And, you know, for those who are perhaps, you know, uh, gradually easing into uh, the, the art of reading or the habit of reading, um, you know, there's a lot of other uh, great materials out there as well um, for those who are more uh, perhaps visually uh, inclined to learn. Um, you know, a, a great resource that's out there that's relatively affordable, um, there's uh, the DVDs called Combat Reels, and uh that's, uh, you know, these vast uh, assemblages of, uh, you know, footage in the National Archives that some individuals have put together. And there's practically footage on, you know, every division um, in the war. And, uh, you know, and it's most of it is 
black and white silent footage, uh, but it's a really great way to uh, examine the material details of uh, a lot of these units and to get perspective on where they were and what they were wearing and what they went through and what was the weather like. Um, so, you know, things like that are great. Podcasts like this are very handy as well. Um, and then, you know, there's uh, you know, no shortage of, uh, you know, old History Channel documentaries to be found on, on YouTube and uh, other resources like that. How sad is um, that, so, that to direct people to History Channel programming? they got to go to the Internet because now all the History Channel consists of are car shows and pawn shop shows. I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> And and as you were talking about that, the other resource that we have great access to, thanks to people like Amazon Prime, any of your large, good-selling books usually have an audible version of it. So, you know, if you're not a big reader, and if you struggle with that sort of thing, or if you don't have the attention span to sit down and read, you'd be surprised at the amount of audible books that you can find. Download them just like you download this podcast if you're out cleaning your car, mowing your grass, walking, riding the bus, or doing, you know, whatever it is. Pop that um, Audible book in and, and learn that way. Indeed. One of the things I asked Tom Kelly when he was on the podcast, I'm going to ask you too, is um, where do you hope this hobby goes in the future and um, the participants who build impressions? What, what would you like to see change or improve upon in, this, in the current hobby? That's a great question. And you know, really the future of the hobby depends. You know, the greatest factor indicating its direction is really popular culture. Because, you know, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, Civil War reenacting was the big thing, and that's because there were all these great Civil War movies and documentaries coming out that captured the public's imagination. And then in more recent years with Band of Brothers, The Pacific, Call of Duty, video games, uh, Medal of Honor video games, you know, these were some of the things that, that really spurred, you know, young people, you know, coming of age in, in the 2000s, really. Um, to determine that, yeah, I want to do this perhaps over Civil War reenacting or Revolutionary War reenacting. Yeah, with more recent stuff, you know, movies like Dunkirk and uh, very popular uh, movies like that, I, I don't foresee uh, the popularity of World War II history um, dying off anytime soon. Um, but, you know, uh, you know, in moving ahead or looking ahead, you know, I think a broader diversity of units of divisions being represented um, would certainly be a, a nice touch, a, a step in the right direction. Oh, let's see. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the big things. But, you know, in, in addition to that, um, you know, just trying to, wherever possible, incorporate more educational elements, you know, connect people to historical resources in their own communities. Because it's that sort of grassroots history that will determine whether or not a hobby like this lives or dies more than anything else, perhaps. Well, and two things. One, you, you mentioned the, the pop culture aspect of this. And um, obviously with the new Tom Hanks Spielberg production that's working on, that'll be coming out in, on HBO in a few years. I'm sure that'll ignite some fires. But I kind of want to go back to the Band of Brothers. And I've seen on on you know reenacting pages and I've heard in, in life people refer to it as Bandwagon of Brothers. And and kind of yes, as you said earlier, when you got started, you know the the hundred first was greatly overrepresented. But to call the bandwagon brother bandwagon of brothers is kind of like off putting to me because we're all doing this because we think the general public need to get more interest in the history of World War II. 
And when you have a series like the Band of Brothers that did such a good job of getting people interested in it, I mean, for the longest time, even Spike TV, during uh, Memorial Day, they would play the entire series unedited to get more exposure to people. And yes, Call of Duty, it has its flaws, and it's not historically accurate. And, you know, you see people landing on D-Day wearing, you know, the wrong uniforms and all that. But once again, it's at least getting, you know, people who prior to playing the game may have not had any knowledge of the war or any interest in it, it may spark a few fires in some younger people to get them interested in World War II, to get them interested in going out and researching it. Or maybe when they're flipping through TV at the end of the day and they're flipping past the military channel or maybe History 3 um, and they see some World War II footage, they may stop for a moment and say, hey, that looks familiar. I've seen that on Call of Duty. And now they've spent an hour watching the show that before the game came out or before they saw Band of Brothers or Dunkirk or whatever pop culture movie, you know, Fury, whatever it is that some reenactors like to put down, those outlets are doing their job as, as far as getting people interested into the history of the war. And that's kind of brings me to another point. The internet produces jerks. Um, you have a lot of telephone tough guys, except we're not on telephones. I'm showing my age. And what I mean by that is one of the things I would like to see die out in this hobby are these diehard farb guys, these guys who like to call out people publicly on Facebook, bad-mouthing their impression instead of sending them a private message, making constructive criticism on how to improve their impression. Instead, they'd rather lambase them, completely talk down about them, and potentially get that person out of the hobby because they're, they've been publicly embarrassed. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll just add on, I think there's, there's definitely a connecting bridge there between those who criticize pop culture and those who criticize perhaps newer people to the hobby. And I think uh, that it's just really vital, one, that reenactors and living historians, um, rather than looking down perhaps on you know some, some recent movies or, or things like that, that you make the most of it. And, you know, you use that as, as a seed to cultivate a appreciation and knowledge. Um, you know, wherever possible. And, you know, at the same time, uh, be open-minded and helpful um, for, you know, people getting into the hobby and perhaps don't have the knowledge and material culture um, that more seasoned reenactors might. There's definitely some crossover there uh, that all living historians could work with. Well, the interesting thing about the Farb Caller guys is you never see it in, uh, in person. You never see it at an event. Um, you'll be at an event with somebody... And they'll talk to you nice and cool, and then two days later, not that this has happened to me, but I've seen it happen to people I know, two days later, their photo has been put up on one of these FARB pages where that same person who was just talking to them in public two days ago, being nice to them, is lambasting them on the internet, being a complete jerk. It's like, why didn't you take this person aside in person and say, hey, you know, I appreciate what you're trying to do, but let's look at your impression, here's some stuff you may want to work on, and you may find that person say, yeah, I'm aware of this, you know, I just had... X, Y, and Z happen in my life. I'm financially, you know, trying to get together the funds to correct these issues, but I want to be here. Now, obviously, if you're showing up in a reenactment wearing a pair of sneakers instead of boots, that's a whole different thing. But, you know, you know, if somebody, for example, somebody's doing an impression of a Guadalcanal Marine, but they have the medical pact that didn't come out until two years later, things like that, yes, it's not air correct and it's quote-unquote Farby, but, you know, little things like that, instead of tearing them apart on the internet if you're at that event take them aside and say you know hey 
you know, people are noticing these things, you know, anything I can help make suggest, did you know X, Y, and Z? And there's a big chance a person say, yes, I'm aware of that, I'm working on it. Or B, they'll say, no, I wasn't aware of that, but thanks so much. And by the way, where can I research this sort of stuff? Where can I find the information so I can correct these things? And that would be a huge help, especially to the younger kids who are getting involved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that just reinforces a, a point that we discussed earlier um, about discourse, um, not only with the general public, but those within the reenactor community as well, how one presents themselves in public. And how do you facilitate dialogue to bring about something, you know, meaningful and productive? I think, uh, you know, like it all goes full circle. One of the things that I'm anticipating in the future where we're going to see, especially with the um, younger guys, you know, the people who are, you know, late teens, early 20s, um, with the prevalent usage of devices in their daily lives, and this doesn't even actually have to do with World War II reenacting, but in general, um, the social interaction side. I, I think that and as we get older and this um, hobby progresses and the younger generation gets older, a lot of them are going to take a lot longer to um, open up and to learn the interaction skills. You know, one of the things I kind of associate living history events with, um, if anybody who's a business owner or has done any sort of sales, we're essentially a historical equivalent to a trade show. Um, if you're a doctor, you're, every once in a while you go to a trade show where you have people trying to sell you their equipment or their their new medical devices, and that person is a salesperson, and they're trying to get your attention, bring you over to their table, look you in the eye, interact with you, keep your attention, and peddle their wares to you, where we're reenactors, we're doing the same thing. We're trying to sell people history. Obviously, we're not looking for a, tr a financial transaction, but we're trying to basically sell you our knowledge so you can keep and take it with you, and I think one of the things that some of the younger guys may struggle with, and here's kind of the, here's kind of the proof in the pudding, if you will. I think a year ago I was reading, there was a police department out in Washington State, and they were noticing a lot of the new recruits for their police department were coming in who have no social interaction skills. They physically had to remove them from the police academy, take them out to the mall, put them in plain clothes, and instruct them just to walk up to random strangers and engage them in conversation, make eye contact, because we have a generation of people who grew up living in their devices, even at family reunions. You'd see photos of kids at family reunions sitting in a circle talking to each other through their cell phones. And so it'll be interesting to see as this hobby progresses over time, if we see some of our new guys kind of having a hard time developing the skills to interact with the public. Uh, yeah, I, I, can, uh, I can certainly foresee challenges like that. Um, in speaking for uh, my own group um, and how we get some of our uh, younger or newer members acclimated to the hobby and the standards of, of presentation, um, you know, usually what we do for each one of our setups or displays, uh, you know, it's, it's a certain theme. Um, oftentimes we take an 81 millimeter mortar um, for display and um, we, we have a, a talk that we present, you know, to the, the shuffles of people that come through. And, you know, we, we usually make it interactive and we let visiting individuals, you know, go through the various steps of, you know, mock uh, loading and firing, you know, one of these things. And we add a little bit of personal story to it as well. And, uh, you know, usually what we do um, for some of our newer folks is, you know, for the, the first few run-throughs, uh, we have them 
stand on the sidelines a little bit uh, where they can, uh, you know, kind of soak in and absorb the, the information and the presentation style. Uh, and, you know, then maybe, you know, a few hours later, you know, I'll, uh, you know, motion to one of them, okay, you're up. Um, let's see what you can do. Uh, what did you learn from everybody else talking? What sort of personal flavor can you add to the presentation? Um, and so, um, gradually, you know, submerging people into it in that sort of manner, um, you know, whether they be, you know, uh, a new teenage recruit or, you know, somebody who is just, you know, new to the, the group in general, um, uh, tactics like that tend to work fairly well. And to build on that, I think one of the responsibilities as a, um, a group leader, if you will, or a facilitator for that matter, I mean, I don't know what terms we use in our own personal groups, but if you have a new guy coming in, most new guys, they they have something that they've kind of already built their knowledge base off of, whether it's something very small that has to do with a particular weapon or a piece of gear, kind of like you said, a mortar, or whether they're, you know, they're kind of techie in real life, and so their interest that brought them in the group, they have a lot of knowledge about the radios. Kind of feel your guys out, see what their, their kind of expertise, whether how limited it may be. When you're doing your presentation, you're talking to the group, when your conversation leads towards that particular subject matter, kind of hand it off to that young man and let him shine on the subject that he already has knowledge built around. And then when he does that a few times, he'll feel good about himself and he will discover how easy it is to talk to the public. And as he's around you and the rest of the guys and he's soaking in the information that he hears event after event that you're talking about and that he goes off and researches, then he will slowly start to expand from his little tiny, you know, nugget of knowledge and what he knows, and he'll start building the other knowledges that he picks up off of the other guys in the group. And before you know it, exactly. he'll be out there, and his whole dialogue will expand tremendously. I couldn't agree more. So if anybody is in the um, the Pennsylvania area, let me ask you this. I know you guys have, um, you do Central Pennsylvania, you do the Pittsburgh area. Do you have any members from any of the other, you know, outlying areas? Uh, yes, we have uh, a, a few uh, members or associate members in Ohio and uh, also uh, a few in the Baltimore area. Um, for the most part, though, um, we're, we're scattered throughout Pennsylvania. Um, but uh, if anybody is looking for a group to fall in with and you live in uh, one of the, the bordering states and don't mind driving to connect up with us now and again, um, we certainly encourage you to get in touch with us. And uh, what's the best avenues for them to do that? Um, they can uh, do that at our Facebook page, which is entitled the Furious Fourth World War II Living History Group. And uh, we also have a website, which is furiousfourth.weebly.com. And there's a link to that that can be found on our Facebook page. And uh, the easiest way to find you guys on Facebook is actually just search Go to the search bar, type in the at logo, so at Furious Fourth, and uh, they'll pop right up in your screen. Um, as I kind of mentioned on our last episode, down here in Florida, our season's kind of winding down because, as you can imagine, being out there in Wolves in the middle of August and uh, June down here in the Florida heat um, is not the uh, most luxurious thing in the world to do. But you guys up north, you're really starting to uh, really start your season here shortly, aren't you? Yes, that's correct. And, uh, in fact, uh, May tends to be our busiest month. Uh, we often have three or four events in May alone. Uh, last year we did 18 events in all seasons of the year. And uh, we 
did, uh, even though 4th Infantry Division is our, our main impression, we also meander into other realms as well, um, including uh, a, a naval impression at a local resort that was a naval radio school during the war, and uh, we also uh, uh, treaded new territory this past fall when we did a, uh, a POW impression at a uh, local uh, Revolutionary War fort in that uh, historic site. Uh, stood in as a as a Stalag camp, and we talked about the prisoner of war experience. Um, so we diversify every now and again, but we also stay true to our roots. And that prisoner of war um, event you guys did, once again, I saw the photos because I follow you on Facebook. That was a tremendous uh, set of photos you guys did. And and talk about underrepresentation. There's another one right there. Um, how did how did that whole thing come to light? Whose idea was it to say, you know, hey, let's, I mean, did somebody come to you and ask you if you guys had a curriculum based on that, or is there something you guys felt was underrepresented and wanted to uh, try out? Uh, well, attending one event often leads to ideas for another, and I'm sure you can uh, relate to that as well as any of the listeners could. Uh, a few years ago, we did a Hurtgen Forest-themed living history event at a, a Revolutionary War fort in our area that's known as Fort Roberto, and it's about three or hundred acres or so um, of woodlands surrounding it um, that worked very well for our uh, uh, impression for that particular event. And while we were there, um, one of our members made the comment that, hey, you know what, the fort could work really well as, as a prisoner of war camp. Sure. Um, and so uh, after talking it over with uh, the site administrators and uh, getting a lot of our uniforms and material and Red Cross parcels and things of that nature all in order, um, we decided to, to go ahead with it. And uh, it was uh, a very unique experience. Now, with the current climate that we're in as a society, was there any, when this whole concept or idea was presented to the administrators, was there any concerns about how in-depth you get as far as photographs and, you know, kind of the deplorable living conditions a lot of these uh, prisoners were subjected to? I mean, did you guys try to, I don't want to say keep out light, but I mean, how in-depth did you guys go into the actual, um, the history and the, um, the visual displays of all this? Well... Um, we didn't get, um, you know, too graphic or, or anything like that. Um, but, you know, when I'm of the mind that, that we should never shy away from tough history, uh, whether it be slavery or the prisoner of war experience, um, these are things that are worthy of discussion. I couldn't agree with And more. When, done, when done appropriately and done respectfully, Mm-hmm. Um, living history can be a powerful vehicle for discussing sometimes that, that difficult past. Um, so in, in cases like this, when, when talking about prisoners of war, um, you just need, you know, a little asterisk or a footnote, um, you know, informing visitors ahead of time. Um, you know, this is what we're going to be discussing. Uh, we are not making a mockery of it. We are not celebrating it. We are interpreting it. And uh, adding that sort of context is absolutely essential, especially for potentially, you know, a difficult or divisive subject matter uh, as such. Um, but every single visitor who attended um, received it very, very well. Um, we received uh, many accolades um, for, you know, uh, portraying this uh, episode of history in a respectful and relatively authentic manner. 
Um, and I think, you know, you just, uh, you just need to lay all the cards out on the table uh, at the outset and, uh, you know, give visitors, you know, that, that level of recognition, that level of context, and uh, just go with the flow. Well, and, and you kind of touched on a, a good point. You're not celebrating this, and and I think that's kind of one of the problems we have in the current um, environment we're in. People have a tendency when it comes to history to look at monuments or historical displays or uh, history lessons, as you will, as celebrations, as something to honor. But that's not always the case. A lot of times, especially when it comes to, you know, like you said, prison war camps, um, work camps, internment camps, um, anything like that. No, we're not celebrating this as something great. We're informing and preserving because once again if we don't learn from this how do we prevent it from happening again and that's kind of what's very concerning about with what you're seeing going on with all of these um, monument destruction and removal well it's a it's a conversation I often have uh, with students and uh, you know uh, often you know I'll, we come to the conclusion that you know there's a, a difference between uh, honor and memory. Um, we can honor parts of our past. Uh, we can remember parts of our past, but those don't always mean the same thing. And it's often a careful balancing act, and it's uh, often, um, you know, uh, based on one particular situation or a case-by-case basis. Uh, but it, it is indeed a, a delicate line um, that, that needs to be balanced in, in the world of public history. Um, but, um, you know, as we keep coming back to um, discussion, uh, honest discourse, it's a, a really key part of it all. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, one thing before I let you go, I want to kind of dip into real quick, just because um, another thing that I've seen you do, which is very cool, and it's something that, is based off of one of the things you do in your your daily life. Um, one of the impressions you've done, which you rarely see do, is you've um, kind of incorporated at some some locations, at some events, if it's appropriate. Your um, I don't want to say uh, ranger impression, but uh, your forestry um, uniform. I, I've seen you uh, in some of your forestry gear during some of these impression, uh, some of these living history events, and. I mean, the forestry and the preservation of um, our natural beauties have been around for a long time, and you've been able to incorporate some of that history into some of these events as well, correct? Indeed. Um, yes, I, I, uh, I, well, I, we use that at um, Eisenhower National Historic Site um, in particular for the, the annual World War II weekend uh, that they have at the, at the General's uh, Pennsylvania residence. And... Uh, that's one of the, the unique opportunities that we have to uh, carve an impression that is site-specific, um, in, in this case to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, uh, because, you know, everybody knows about the Civil War battle. Um, what a lot of people don't know, though, um, is that about, uh, about a thousand German prisoners of war lived on the Civil War battlefield um, in 1944 through 1946. And uh, they uh, were camped there right on the fields where the discharge took place. Um, so you had uh, uh, German prisoners of war uh, living in a national park on a Civil War battlefield. 
on what and, some uh, may consider hollow po- ground. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and uh, military police uh, supervised the camp, but around it was still a very active national park. And, uh, you know, people could walk relatively close up to the, the front gates of the place and, you know, kind of see it as this unusual tourist attraction. Um, and so uh, what, what my outfit uh, often does for that event um, is that uh, uh, my, my colleagues uh, dress up as the prisoners of war. Uh, one or two more dress up as uh, military policemen. And uh, I dress up as a 1940s park ranger. And uh, uh, that's a, a very unique event for us because we often try to incorporate public service uh, with that, and what we've done the last two years uh, is that we uh, volunteer um, in the park's uh, landscape restoration project. Uh, and you know, over the past few years, the battlefield has been trying to uh, restore the landscape closer to its 1860s appearance, and uh, and that includes the removal of a lot of brush and whatnot. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, we go out for a few hours. And, uh, you know, my guys uh, cut brush under MP guard. That's awesome. And uh, it's, it, it's just a, a really unique opportunity because uh, we can not only educate people, because uh, people are very curious when they, they yeah, see that I'm sort sure. of thing going on at a Civil War park. And it, it serves as a means of promotion for the event, um, but we're also volunteering and helping the National Park carry out its mission as well. Um, so that's that's usually one of our top, you know, favorite events we well, attend yearly. Well, I mean, that, I mean, that's that's super awesome and cool. Like you said, you're you're contributing, you're giving back to the park that allows you guys to have so many of these events. You're educating the public, and the last and smallest little thing that really means nothing, but I think it's cool, is you're naturally weathering your impressions. No, uh, indeed. No artificial, you know, burying it in the yard for a couple of days. You guys are actually out sweating, getting it dirty, and and doing it right. That we do. One impression that would be kind of cool to see, especially it, it would make more sense up north. I would like to see people kind of dip their toes into the uh, civilian construction corp uh, impression. That would be nice to see too. Uh, every now and again, um, you see CCC impressions, um, you know, here and there. Um, I can't recall off the top of my head uh, where they where I saw them, uh, but they, they are floating around, and perhaps that will be something that we'll grow to. Now, what did they primarily wear? Did they were, were the was it denim dungarees or did they wear HPTs and khaki? I mean, what was the uh, uniform for the CCC? Um, a lot of photographs I've seen, they wore uh, blue denim uniforms, very similar to you know early war infantry. Um, you know, as I often tell my students, the, the CCC, it is an army, but instead of rifles, they have shovels. Shovels and pickaxes. Um, exactly. Um, and so you see there's a lot of carryover. There's a lot of similarities between, you know, uh, CCC uniforms and 1940-1941 U.S. military uniforms. Thank you so much for your time. Once again, I've been talking to Jared Frederick one of the unit coordinators for the Furious Fourth World War II Living History Group located up in the Pennsylvania area. And once again, if you're in that area and you want to 
possibly uh, join their group or maybe go to an event that they will happily uh, broadcast on their Facebook page of upcoming events of, of upcoming events and calendar dates. Check them out. Go to Facebook. Go to your search bar. Simply type in the at symbol with Furious Fourth. They will come up. Once again, Jared, thanks so much for your time and have a great evening. Thank you.